The far right is on the march in the United States. Despite being momentarily isolated following the January 6th assault on the Capitol, the extreme right wing is resurrecting itself with the help of tactical blunders by the Democratic Party elite. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the Socialist Program with Brian Becker. It's February 2nd, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com slash the socialist program. We're also working on rolling out a fourth day of content each week on the police state and U.S. prisons. But we need your support to make that happen. If you enjoy listening to the show and want to hear a fourth day of content, become a patron today at patreon.com slash the socialist program. I'm Nicole Roussel here with Esther Ivarum, Walter Smolarik, and our host, Brian Becker. Today, we'll concentrate on the role of the racist terrorist mob as critical to American history. But before we get to that bigger topic, we'll start with a few headlines. Well, when we left the subject of Biden's coronavirus relief package last week, the new Senate budget chairman, Bernie Sanders, was advocating that Democrats use the budget reconciliation process to pass this $1.9 trillion package, and that reconciliation process would require only a majority vote in the Senate rather than 60 votes. So it appears that Democrats are preparing to take this route with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announcing Monday that they had started the process by filing a joint budget resolution for fiscal year 2021. At the same time, Biden did meet with a group of 10 Republican senators led by Susan Collins of Maine, who are countering with a small $600 billion package, which omits direct aid to cities and states, takes away the minimum wage increase, reduces the one-time direct aid to $1,000 from $1,400, and those payments would only be distributed to individuals earning less than $50,000. Jobless aid would be cut from $400 to $300 where it is now, and that aid would end in June, not in September. Biden met with these senators on Monday, but there are reports that he's not budging on his plan. So the main question now is how long the Democrats are going to take for this effort at bipartisanship that is obviously going nowhere. A lot of discussion is about not making the same mistakes of the Obama administration which wasted a lot of time and political capital trying to compromise with Republicans who whittled down his stimulus bill to be ineffective and still voted against it in the end and prolonged the 08-09 economic crisis. It does not look like these negotiations are going anywhere, but on the other side, I don't hear about progressives getting a meeting with Biden to propose their $2,000 a month in aid, which you know is what people in Canada are receiving. So even though the $1.9 trillion is already inadequate, the only counterproposals even being heard would make that package even smaller. The rollout of COVID-19 vaccines has been much slower than projected in the United States and around the globe, 
with less than a dozen countries projected to have one-third or more of their population vaccinated by the end of 2021. Meanwhile, pharmaceutical companies are gearing up for what some are calling, quote, the COVID-19 line of business, unquote. Angela Huang, group president of biopharmaceuticals at Pfizer, called it, quote, a durable business. Pharmaceutical companies could make billions from the sales of vaccines. Through the mRNA science behind the first two vaccines from Moderna and Pfizer was developed at the U.S. government National Institutes of Health, the federal government has also paid private companies in advance for the process of developing these specific vaccines. If, like the flu, there are frequent boosters, the company will continue to profit handsomely while taxpayers pay the bill. Meanwhile, the much-criticized Sputnik vaccine from Russia has showed a 91% efficacy. The West slammed it early on for being used early, despite the need for a vaccine as quickly as possible. It's now been proven to be, again, 91% effective. The Biden administration's first days in office signal that it intends to maintain a highly aggressive posture towards China. In one of his first official acts after being confirmed, Biden's defense secretary, Lloyd Austin, spoke with his Japanese counterpart and pledged that the United States would be willing to go to war with China over the disputed Diyu Islands in the East China Sea, which Japan calls the Senkakus and claims as their own. This pledge was reiterated by Biden himself when he spoke with the Japanese prime minister. Biden has restructured the National Security Council to focus more heavily on, quote, great power competition with China and appointed well-known anti-China zealot Kurt Campbell to coordinate his administration's Asia policy. And in an interview yesterday, Secretary of State Blinken said that the United States should give safe haven to opponents of the Chinese government in Hong Kong. A recently released study by Oxfam International revealed an incredible fact about inequality amid the coronavirus pandemic. The 10 richest men in the world became $540 billion richer over the course of 2020. That amount of money could have both prevented anyone from falling into poverty and paid for a COVID-19 vaccine for every person on the planet. In other words, if these already unfathomably wealthy capitalists were simply prohibited from becoming even richer last year, then the world would have seen no increase in poverty and everyone could be vaccinated for free. The Oxfam study, titled, quote, The Inequality Virus, also explored many other dimensions of exploding global inequality. Nicole, uh... I, I want to mention just a little bit about the Russian vaccine. You remember, because we were covering this quite a bit back in the day, uh, Russia began uh, releasing the vaccine, Sputnik V, it's called, back in August before stage three or phase three clinical trials. And it was condemned really by the West as being premature and simply a, a, an, an expression of vaccine nationalism. And war in the world, don't use this vaccine, it's not safe. Well, it turns out it's safe and it's effective. Uh, millions of people uh, have you know, been given this vaccine in Brazil, Mexico, and India, not to mention Russia. And the fact of the matter is that the, Russia's always presented as kind of this backward place, but during the Soviet era, uh, and as a consequence of you know Soviet the Soviet Union's extreme advances in mass uh, medicine and health policy, and especially in virology and vaccines, 
Um, the Soviet Union during that period had a very, very advanced uh, system for virology and for mass vaccinations. And in, in many ways, it was a, you know, sort of a trailblazing program. And again, back in the, for, for people in the Soviet Union, healthcare was 100% free, 100% free. Uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union, after the implosion, and after the devastation that was imposed on Russia and the other Soviet republics by the reintroduction of capitalist property relations, uh, millions of people became overnight almost destitute, and a great number of the scientists went abroad, the people who could get jobs elsewhere in industry, in science. But one of the things in the last 20 years as that Putin, by uh, sort of reaffirming and reconfiguring the state and getting Russia back on its feet, a lot of these uh, virologists and scientists and healthcare people have actually returned to Russia. And as a consequence, Russia's uh, health program, especially in this field, is very advanced. Something, again, that most Americans don't know, because all we hear about Russia, all we hear about China is how awful both places are, the nonstop demonization of these two countries, not because they're the worst places on the planet Earth, far from it, uh, but because they have independent governments that the U.S. considers to be an obstacle to the absolute hegemony of U.S. domination globally. Anyway, here we are, Walter, Nicole, Esther, another 100,000 Americans are expected to die in the United States over the next month. That would bring the number of dead to over a half a million. And again, the haphazard lockdown program, the fact that here, even in Washington, D.C., schools may be, re uh, may be still not open, even though there's a push to open them, but indoor dining is, uh, you know, is available. Again, commercial interests always come first. Uh, the United States is in crisis. And instead of denouncing, demonizing the rest of the world, it might be better for the American people to hold the, the government and the media that does this demonizing to account for their own failures. Anyway, let's spend like 30 more seconds on this before we get to our main topic. Go ahead, Nicole. Right. I mean, this was such a, a huge hubbub when Russia had first come out with this vaccine. And um, you know, top scientists were taking the vaccine to show, look, we know it's safe. We've studied that. We don't yet know exactly how, you know, how effective it is. Um, we we think it's effective. We're seeing some signs of effectiveness, but we want to start giving this out because we're in the middle of a global pandemic and people are dying by, you know, huge numbers. And, you know, the West's only response was, well, I don't know why you're administering it to all these poor countries and you haven't, you know, you haven't tested it and you don't know if it's safe. Well, we do know it's safe. And this is quite the opposite, of course, of what the United States is doing, which is hoarding as much vaccine as possible. While, you know, countries around the globe, especially poorer countries, the countries that were colonized by the West have little to even no vaccine in some places. So, you know, this is completely backwards and is really just disgusting coverage coming from the West. Okay, let's get on to our big story now that we've mentioned some of these headlines. And again, COVID getting worse, new mutations, very aggressive. At the same time, as Walter pointed out, the 10 richest men uh, in the world became $540 billion richer during the course of 2020, while 
tens of millions of people in the United States and elsewhere lost employment and thus their income. But let's turn to the other big story. Uh, the impeachment trial starts ne- next week for for Donald Trump. 45 Republicans have now voted, and we know that their vote means that they won't vote to convict Donald Trump. They voted for a resolution that says it's unconstitutional to uh, to impeach someone who is a private citizen, that impeachment is only for elected officials. It, it sets up this weird kind of dichotomy. Donald Trump and his conspirators instigated, this is the federal executive branch of government, instigated a violent attack against the Congress. It wasn't just the Capitol building. It was against the Congress, the legislative branch of government. They instigated the attack, and Donald Trump, we're told, is immune from prosecution because he was the president of the United States at the time of his instigation of this seditious conspiracy. And then once he's out of office, he can't be held to account uh, for impeachment because he's no longer a public official. So if you commit a crime according to this logic, a major crime like a seditious conspiracy, the violent attack on the U.S. Congress that disperses Congress, at least temporarily, uh, an attack that leaves several people dead, and you do it and you're the president, you're immune. And when you're a private citizen, you're then immune from impeachment because you're a private citizen. So, Esther, we're in a situation where the what what Congress is doing, what the House of Representatives did with the impeachment articles, I believe will have the impact of strengthening Donald Trump because they won't get a conviction in the Senate. 45 members of the Republican Party have said no to that. So Donald Trump will come out and to his base, at least, he'll say, one, I'm being persecuted and prosecuted, you know, unconstitutionally uh, because I'm a private citizen. And secondly, I was acquitted. I wasn't convicted. So it'll be like another star on his uh, or another feather in his cap, and it'll sort of help Donald Trump present this image of omnip- omnipotence that he's like he's he can't be touched. He always wins, no matter how big the the crisis is. And at the same time, the there are some arrests by the FBI and other law enforcement of the people who engaged in the violent assault on Congress. There are some arrests. Uh, but the the people who incited the arrest, they're not being charged. And I don't hear anybody from the Democratic Party establishment saying, no matter what, Donald Trump and his top associates, the instigators, the inciters of the seditious conspiracy, that they should too be held account criminally. In other words, if there's a seditious conspiracy, it didn't start with the Proud Boys. It didn't start with the Oath Keepers. It didn't start with the three percenters. Yes, they were the vanguard of fascist fighters at the Capitol building. They were the racist mob, uh, the mob which we know in American history was has played such a decisive role. But what about the instigators? Anyway, I think that's such a big topic. Right. And Brian, I think that we should uh, look out for the possible prosecutions uh, brought against Trump uh, after he, you know, since he is out of office, there are uh, investigations on the state level and on the federal level, and he may not totally escape prosecution. But I want to play, I want us to play a, a clip from Steve Schmidt of the 
the Lincoln Project, uh, because it's it's not just the people on the left who are calling for uh, prosecution of Trump, and this is somebody who is who is uh, talking about that. And it was a bloodstained process because of the incitements of Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and Kevin McCarthy, Donald Trump and Donald Trump Jr. and the other members of Congress like Mo Brooks who incited those people. We have a big question as a country and it's this. Law enforcement is saying by the end of the month there may be a thousand of the incited who stormed and rampaged and caused death and mayhem in the Capitol under arrest. What about the incite Turks? What about the people who told the big lie? Walter, uh, we have a situation here. I mean, that's Steve Schmidt. He's not from the left. He's the Lincoln Project. That's Republicans, but they're not Trump Republicans. He was an official with the George W. Bush administration. He worked with John McCain. The guy is not progressive. Uh, but he's saying something very clear and so, something very obvious that, that, that there was a seditious conspiracy and people should be held to criminal account for that. And again, you don't have to you don't need a new law, the domestic terrorism law, which everybody should oppose. The laws exist. And, and we've said over and over again, if Black Lives Matter movement, if uh, the Answer Coalition, if the Party for Socialism and Liberation, if some left wing force had incited uh, a mob to carry out the violent assault and dispersal of Congress, there's no question that we would have been arrested and charged we'd be sitting in jail today, but the insiders are basically walking free. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I would add to that list, the insiders, but also the enablers. For instance, what about the people in the Pentagon high command that placed so many restrictions on the deployment of the National Guard, uh, a factor that absolutely contributed, maybe was the central contributing factor to the success of the mob in breaching the Capitol, or the police officers in the Capitol Police who were videotaped uh, essentially facilitating the entry of the mob into the Capitol? Uh, what about the people who uh, are uh, supposedly charged with the security of Congress, the sergeants at arms for both the Senate and the House of Representatives, did they play any role in this? Did they have any uh, foreknowledge of what might happen on January 6th? Uh, certainly, we know that the FBI and other law enforcement intelligence agencies knew what was going on. So, so sure, there are insiders, there are enablers, all of these higher level people who occupy positions of political or even military power, uh, they absolutely need to be held to account if something like this isn't to happen again. So it's it's really incredible to me how uh, people who committed this act that, you know, for instance, Chuck Schumer compared to the 1941 attack on Pearl Harbor, uh, in just a few weeks have managed to reinvent and rehabilitate themselves uh, with the help of other powerful forces, uh, first and foremost among them, Donald Trump. Uh, I think that if the approach was different, if instead of impeachment, the Democratic Party, which now controls the executive branch, meaning they control the Department of Justice, an agency that can press charges, if they, if they said, okay, we are going to charge you, Donald Trump, and others in your orbit, with uh, seditious conspiracy, that I think would actually politically work out a lot better than for for them because the optics 
the narrative of an impeachment trial seems tailor-made for Donald Trump. The worst thing that the Senate can do to Donald Trump by impeaching him, even though he's now a private citizen, right? So he can't be removed from office. So the worst thing they, they can do to him is prohibit him from running in the 2024 election. Uh, and that means that Donald Trump could pretty easily cast this as an anti-democratic maneuver by his political opponents. One more instance in a long line of persecution by the political establishment, he can once again posture as the victim, as the outsider, as the anti-establishment figure, and rebuild the popularity that he um, you know, essentially trashed when he denounced his own followers uh, who, who stormed the Capitol. So yeah, I mean, this, this whole uh, impeachment fiasco has, I think, essentially closed the door, politically speaking, um, although it doesn't close the door legally speaking, but politically speaking, on this much more decisive course of action, because Donald Trump is going to be acquitted, right? I mean, he and, and then you think like, okay, so he gets charged again, well, he can make an, you know, again, pretty easily the argument that, well, this is double jeopardy, like I've already been put on trial for this, I was acquitted by the Senate, you know, the most powerful legislative body in this country. Um, and, and And so, you know, he can play the victim all over again. It's it's really such a tremendous missed window of opportunity to crush not only Donald Trump, but Trumpism and this uh, vile, extreme far-right political current. Yeah, Donald Trump has a lot of money to work with, in fact. He's raised tens of millions of dollars. And, you know, McCarthy the from the, the Republicans in the House went to meet with him at Mar-a-Lago. That was part of the reconciliation. Uh, yeah, Trump is in a position where he can overcome his real isolation that we've documented, the thing that happened to him a week after, not not January 7th, not January 8th. Yeah, he lost his Twitter account on January 8th. Uh, that's one <clears throat> negative element that happened to Donald Trump. But the FBI didn't have a press conference for a week. It was only January 12th that the Pentagon finally spoke out. Uh and and then this, you know, Deutsche Bank and Signature Bank and other commercial entities broke ties with Donald Trump for a week. Uh, they did nothing. And then they came down on Donald Trump and it looked like his, you know, his goose was cooked. But he's he's back in. And again, there's no discussion about arresting the inciters. Uh, and you know, when you think about what happened, when you think about what actually happened, where it wasn't the Capitol building per se that was attacked. It was the Congress of the United States. It was dispersed by a right-wing mob. Then you have, a, you, you have to remember that, as we have said, and I want to keep talking about this, this mob of white people, it's a white mob. It's a racist mob. It's a reactionary mob. It has frontline fighters. Not all of them are frontline fighters, but there's certainly frontline fighters who took the lead. And as Walter said, they had the support of different elements within the military establishment or amongst the military and within police departments. Uh, this has been such a decisive factor in American politics. And I, the reason we want to keep saying this is that some people, including progressive people on the left, people we care about, people we are you know, in concert with, are minimizing what happened and what might happen coming next. Anyway, let's keep talking about this. So as we think about this, um, I want us to, to think about the fact that, um, as you just said, Congress was attacked. You know, people keep saying that the Capitol was stormed, but Congress was attacked and the work 
the work of Congress was attacked and stopped. And under the Trump administration officials still in place at that time, that attack was not treated as a crime. That that's the kind of realization <laughs> I guess I came to this week, you know, based out of based on all the discussions we've had on the show. And, you know, we've already discussed the failures of the FBI, the Department of Defense, federal law enforcement, the House and Senate Sergeant of Arms, the Capitol Police and stopping the breach of the Capitol. And those failures or that lack of action should be further investigated. And then after allowing the breach, the 800 or so people who forced their way into the Capitol were allowed to leave. They were not immediately kettled or arrested uh, you know, detained. Um, they went to area hotels and restaurants where some of them gave interviews to national media. Some were allowed to get on planes and go back home. And after they were dispersed, the F FBI announced that they were looking for suspects in what happened on January 6th. And then it took six days, as you mentioned, for the FBI to ha even have a press conference. So this is, this is not totally, uh, this it's not totally clear what happened on January 6th. And, you know, unlike, unlike uh, situations involving the FBI and federal law enforcement in the past, I hope it doesn't take, you know, decades for us to really understand the role of what happened that day. One thing I want to make very clear for our audience is that uh, when when people when the FBI finally did have their press conference and announced that this was going to be a big effort on the part of the FBI to bring the white supremacist and uh, attackers of the Congress to justice, and they have made some arrests, uh, make no mistake about it: the government of the United States, the federal government, the FBI, state governments have throughout American history facilitated the racist mob. They have worked hand in hand with the racist mob. In many cases, the police were the racist mob. As we talked about, Nicole, last time, um, there was the Greensboro, Greensboro massacre uh, in November 1979. Klansmen, Nazis, led by an FBI agent and somebody from the Greensboro Police Department, too, came up and, and massacred uh, these progressive anti-Klan demonstrators when they were having a peaceful rally at a black housing project. And, you know, they were acquitted at trial. Uh, again, the FBI is pictured sometimes like in that movie, Mississippi Burning, where uh, about the, the arrests uh, of, the, of the, the killers of Shorner, Cheney, and Goodman, the three civil rights workers who were killed in 64, the Gene Hackman movie where the FBI comes in and heroically sort of brings justice against the racist. No, that's not that was that was completely fictional. In almost every case where uh black leaders or white uh, uh supporters of the civil rights movement were assassinated, you find the hand of the state, you find the hand of the FBI. And and we can go through and I want to have a seg a session that does just that, you know, sort of documents this. There are new documents out by the way, uh and this is important about the killing of Fred Hampton. Fred Hampton was assassinated on December fourth, nineteen sixty nine. Uh, those uh, that killing was carried out by the Chicago Police Department, but it was really a J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI that instigated the attack. They had infiltrated the Black Panther Party. They had uh, uh, 
William O'Neill uh, as a provocateur agent informant working inside the Panthers. He was the captain of the Chicago uh, Black Panther Party security. He gave the the floor plan of Fred Hampton's apartment, including where he slept, uh, to the FBI, which gave it to the Chicago police. And then they carried out the raid. They they used a machine gun. They shot 90 bullets into Fred Hampton. That story is still coming out. There's still new documents coming out just in the last few days uh, about how the FBI was involved in the entire attack and then how the FBI was involved in another conspiracy, which was to conceal uh, the FBI's role. The FBI has, you know, they, they were targeting uh, Stokely Carmichael, then Kwame Touré. They were uh, targeting Malcolm X. They were targeting Elijah Muhammad. They were targeting the Black Panther Party. All of this was part of what we now know to be COINTELPRO, counterintelligence program. But how did we learn about COINTELPRO? Was it the U.S. Congress that finally blew the lid off COINTELPRO that showed how the FBI not only surveilled black and progressive organizations, but actively disrupted them, uh, created factional divisions, organized uh, murderous attacks. I mean, it was a path of destruction. But the only reason we found out about COINTELPRO was because a group of activists, eight of them, uh, went into the FBI headquarters in Media, Pennsylvania, right outside of Philadelphia, on March 8th, 1971, they broke in successfully. They stole every document from the FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania. They took it to a farmhouse. They photocopied it. They went through all of those documents. And then they, they, they found out there was something called COINTELPRO. That's how we learned about COINTELPRO. Those activists, by the way, uh, they... They took the documents, the photocopy documents, they mailed them to George McGovern, who had just announced his campaign for president against Richard Nixon in 1972. They mailed them to other uh, people who are politically active or politicians, and they also mailed them to some media. And George McGovern uh, returned the, the documents to the FBI when John Mitchell instructed anyone who had gotten these documents to return them to the FBI so that FBI agents would not be killed as a consequence of the release of this uh, classified information. So George McGovern complied, others complied, but a few journalists uh, in particular did not comply. And those uh, documents, as they were brought out by courageous independent journalists, became the basis for the 1975 church hearings, which then revealed Yes, the FBI was at war against black America. The FBI was not only infiltrating the KKK and the Klan uh, and other organizations, again, not to disrupt them, but to facilitate their work and to facilitate the war against progressive America. This is the FBI. It's the same FBI. It's the same FBI that under James Comey talked about uh, black identity extremists. Uh, they killed Fred Hampton for the same reason that Martin Luther King Jr. was killed. J. Edgar Hoover said, we don't want a black messiah uh, who could be the, the leader galvanizing the struggle of African-American people in the United States. Anyway, uh, the racist mob in America, there's so many instances of it, has not been uh, attacked by the government or the FBI or law enforcement. They have, in fact, functioned as its auxiliary.
And you can read more about these documents on uh, truthout.org. Um, there was a, a piece written by the lawyers for Fred Hampton, um, Flint Taylor and Jeff Haas. And it really shows FBI agent Roy Martin Mitchell and William O'Neill, the informant who was, you know, had in, uh, infiltrated into the Black Panther Party, literally drew out a detailed, detailed diagram of Fred Hampton's apartment, even noting where the bed was, where Fred Hampton would be and and provided that to the FBI, who provided that to the Chicago Police Department. I mean, really, really clear and, you know, very, very clear and disgusting plans to assassinate this this leader, this people's leader. Um, but Brian, there's some other really important history. Uh, you shared an article with the team uh, in Politico, what Ulysses Grant can teach Joe Biden about putting down violent insurrections. And I think there's a lot of really important information in, in this piece as well. Um, you know, it shows the history for these white supremacist violent insurrections in the United States. In, you know, th these are just a couple profiled, but in North Carolina in 1870, um, the Ku Klux Klan terror um, helped the Southern Democrats recapture the state, electing five of seven congressmen. Um, in South Carolina in 1871, one year later, um, the Klan and white terror violence rampaged across the state aimed directly at overthrowing elected officials. I mean, this sounds so, you know, so similar to what happened on January 6th. And then in Louisiana, the, the Colfax massacre, uh, which uh, a historian called, quote, the bloodiest act of racial violence in all of Reconstruction. Um, the, the Colfax massacre came from white Louisianans' refusal to accept the 1872 election, though it wasn't necessarily aimed directly at overthrowing the state government, at least immediately. So those are three examples. And I just want to read um, a, a piece about from this article about former president and Union General Ulysses S. Grant, who was president during this time, right after the Civil War in the mid-1860s into the mid-1870s. Um, it starts, Grant battled back, sometimes almost single-handedly, against rising insurrections bursting across the South. Time and again, he appeared to succeed, only to eventually watch the entire edifice of Reconstruction crumble under Supreme Court decisions, wilting willingness among Northern whites to win the peace, and most especially, a compromise of 1877 that cemented the beginnings of the Jim Crow era to come. Grant's approach relied on a combination of brute military force and a drastic curtailment of civil liberties, yet it nevertheless has relevance for the current moment and contains lessons for lawmakers who fear that January 6th might have been only the first of widespread attacks on the government and elected officials at all levels across large swaths of the nation. Officials in our current era have many more legal tools at their disposal to combat such terrorism. But as Grant's experience shows, it's not just the tools that count. Rather, it's the willingness to persist in the fight that will likely decide whether these counterterrorism efforts actually succeed. And I think this you know, that's that's the end of the piece I'm reading from the article. I, I think this really goes to show what we've been saying here on the show, that there are plenty of tools in the toolkit of Congress people, of uh, the executive of Joe Biden's administration to deal with this, to arrest Donald Trump, to arrest the incitors, um, to to actually really crush this movement. Um, but, you know, as this piece, you know, talks about, it's really the the willingness to persist in this fight um, the the willingness among the public and the willingness mostly among these politicians to hold other politicians accountable. Walter, the um, the situation with January 6th had some earlier precedents. One was the 
armed militia right-wing attack on the Capitol building in Lansing, Michigan. Uh, and that was successful, meaning no, you know, the, the attackers who took over the building with arms in hand, these right-wingers, these fascistic elements, uh, they weren't arrested. Uh, Donald Trump, in fact, celebrated them. He said, liberate Michigan. Uh, Donald Trump also really, in essence, celebrated what happened in Charlottesville in 2017 uh, with the killing of Heather Heyer and the, you know, the onset of a fascist mob in Charlottesville. They came, they chanted, the Jews will not replace us. They carried torches. They beat up individual uh, progressive people. They singled out black people who they could find the night before their assault. Uh, other people came to try to stop the fascists, and Donald Trump you know, wouldn't support them. In fact, he condemned the people on the left. And then when he was obviously uh, under a lot of pressure, he said, uh, yeah, I condemn white supremacy, but there are very fine people on both sides. Well, one side was came to Charlottesville as part of a fascist mob. I mean, that's why they were there. They weren't very fine people. They were fascists. That's why they came. Uh, Nicole, I think we have, do we have the audio clip of Donald Trump? Very fine people on both sides. So they were very fine people who were chanting, the, the one side were people chanting, the Jews will not replace us, carrying the Confederate flag, attacking black people, uh, announcing basically that their time had come. Uh, Walter, uh, very fine people. Donald Trump has been the instigator for the last four years he, he may not be, he's a white supremacist. He's a racist. We know that about how he handled the, so much of his own business. He was evicting black people for decades. Uh, that's how he got started in his father's business. His father, Fred Trump, was a member or a supporter of the KKK. He was arrested at a Klan rally in Queens, New York. Uh, Fred Trump was. Uh, Donald Trump took out that full page ad calling for the execution of the Central Park Five, five teenagers who were later proved to be innocent uh, for a, a terrible assault against a white woman in Central Park. But there was, uh, you know, this demonization of the defendants. The police forced confessions out of these kids who were 14, 15 years old. Donald Trump took out a full page ad in the Daily News calling for their execution. Later, again, they were exonerated. He's a racist. He may not be an ideological fascist. He's mainly just in it for Trump, but he's been using the fascists. He's been promoting this. And January 6th was not like just a single moment. It's part of a longer process. Absolutely. It's part of a of a much longer process that's been at play, uh, I, I would argue, I mean, since before Donald Trump became the president, I mean, certainly you could trace it back to, say, you know, the Tea Party in 2010, where you had these, um, you know, again, I mean, that was sort of a form of a mob, right? I mean, the uh, specific target in that case was this, you know, very tepid healthcare reform law that was being pushed by the Obama administration. But obviously, there were there are other deeper issues related to white supremacy that was animating that movement. Um, so that had, you know, become fully embraced and integrated into the mainstream of the Republican Party. Uh, and then you have, you know, Donald Trump come along in 2015 in the Republican primary. At first, he was, um, you know, may, if not a marginal figure, not the leading figure, but he quickly established his dominance. Uh, and 
uh, essentially staged a hostile takeover of the Republican Party. Um, and and as you laid out throughout his whole term, there is this relationship of convenience that he had with outright ideological fascist forces, like organized fascist groups that would provide um you know, certain certain political favors or carry out acts of political violence that were favorable to whatever his goals at the moment were. Uh, but this is a very dangerous game that the the sort of establishment right wing is playing, the right wing that's currently in power. And it's a common mistake uh, that right wing establishment figures make. The, the idea that the energy of these far right wing fascistic forces could be harnessed towards their end, but controlled. And frequently it's that control part that doesn't work out. And I think we're starting to see that play out in the U.S. Congress where you have people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Bobbert and Paul Gosar and all of these people who who truly are ideal. I mean, I, I would say that they are truly ideological fascists. I mean, maybe they sound a little bit different than, you know, the, the Nazis or, you know, members of Mussolini's fascist party. But in the context of the United States, I think they represent a fascist political force. Uh, they're advocates of violence. They want to restrict the basic democratic rights of, of anybody who isn't uh, a, you know, right wing white male. Uh, the, the sort of Paul Gosars of the world, the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world uh, aren't necessarily going to stop just because Kevin McCarthy or Donald Trump, for that matter, tells them to. There's the, the genie is kind of out of the bottle now. Uh, and there has to be a profound shift in the fundamental direction of U.S. politics for that to reverse itself. Esther, Nicole mentioned that piece in, in Politico about what Ulysses S. Grant could teach Joe Biden. I mean, the Reconstruction era showed that the Civil War did not end in 1865. The South was technically defeated in 1865. There was the beginning of Reconstruction, meaning uh, legislator, legislatures where Black people were able to run and, and serve, and that there was a coalitions of poor whites led by formerly enslaved people with the support of the Northern Army, because the Northern Army was at least a, a military counterweight to uh, the Confederacy or later to the Klan as it rose. But when you look at the American history through the whole Reconstruction period, uh, it's dominated by the mob. It's dominated by these racist attacks. And then, in, in, I just want to mention, this, this war went on until Reconstruction was called off in 1876. The Northern Army was withdrawn Rutherford B. Hayes, the Republican, made a deal with the slaveocracy, even though he lost the popular vote and he really lost the election. They allowed him to become the next president. And in exchange, he he eliminated or brought back the northern troops from the south. And so once the repressive element of the northern army was withdrawn, that's when Klan terror goes from being like uh, you know, a vicious war to being like the the new ruling dominating scenario uh, that black people in this in southern states found themselves for a long time, and and I want to just bring it up to date. A hundred years later, uh, look at what happened in in Mississippi in in 1962. There was the the so called riot, the white fascist mob at, in Oxford, Mississippi. 
you know, people were killed. A French journalist was killed. Others were killed. What precipitated that? It was that James Meredith, uh, who was black, who had been uh, an Air Force veteran, who had excellent grades, applied uh, to University of Mississippi, and the governor of Mississippi and the white mobs uh, wouldn't let him come to the college. And so there was a riot. 3,000 mob, a 3,000-strong mob uh, carried out the, the attempted seizure of power in that campus and in that town in Oxford to prevent James Meredith from taking, uh, you know, becoming the first black student at the University of Mississippi. That's not 100 years ago. That's 1962. Here's what uh, Governor Ross Barnett uh, said at the time, explaining why the mob should act, again, instigating the mob. Quote, here's Governor Barnett. There is no case in history where the Caucasian race has survived social integration. We will not drink from the cup of genocide. We must either submit to the unlawful dictates of the federal government or stand up like men and tell them never. No school will be integrated in Mississippi while I am your governor. And then Kennedy, who was president, had these like pleadings with Barnett to stop, stop doing this. And Barnett was like, no, I'm not stopping. And so, you know, thousands of white racists uh, mobilized because they were trying to make Mississippi great again by keeping James Meredith out of the University of Mississippi. And for those who might not know, James Meredith was later, not at that moment, he was, uh, he was shot. He, didn't, he wasn't killed. But in the campus where they had brought him, he was almost lynched that day. I mean, this is America. Right, Brian. You know, when you were talking about Reconstruction, it reminded me that last year, a very important, a very crucial report came out by the Equal Justice Initiative that documented the fact that uh, 2000, uh, I should say documented so far because the research is still going on, but 2000 um, African-Americans were lynched during the Reconstruction period, many of them by the white mob. And what's striking about that report is because the Equal Justice Initiative also did a report from the end of Reconstruction to 1950. And that report included about 4,000 people. So you're talking about for decades after there had been only 4,000 documented lynchings. But in that small window of Reconstruction from, I guess, 1865 to when the troops were withdrawn, uh, 2,000 documented uh, lynchings, um, racial terror killings during that time, many of these by the white mob. And this research isn't even complete. Like there are batches of, of, of documents and other types of materials that are yet to be uh, gone through. And there's not the resources to actually complete the research, but they are working on it. And one of the incidents uh, included in the report is a lynch mob in New, New Orleans. And this is just over a year after the end of enslavement of, of Black people in the United States. The New Orleans hosted a convention of white men um, seeking to ensure uh, Louisiana's new constitution would guarantee voting rights for Black residents. And so there was racist opposition to this 
convention. And so around the convention, um, at least 200 people were killed. Uh, a mob descended on the area around this convention, uh, wantonly killing uh, any of the black people who had come to the area to support the convention, some of the uh, participants in the convention. So at least 200 people were killed in this one incident. And so that's, that's part of this documented reign of terror that happened uh, during um, to, to, to fight against reconstruction. And um, the other thing I want to mention is the fact that when uh, the movement for what has become the movement for black lives uh, developed and out of like longstanding movements against, you know, racist police terror in black communities, a lot of this is also in response to the white mob because, because, you know, police often come to black communities to commit violence as a white mob, as a white armed mob armed by the state. So I grew up in Philadelphia and one of my earliest memories of is seeing the, on the newspaper, uh, the black Panthers being made to strip naked and, um, you know, up on Columbia Avenue in North Philadelphia and the, you know, Rizzo and the police armed police around them. And so even when you have the, the, the basically assassination of move members two times in Philadelphia, you had uh, an armed mob of police basically evicting them from their homes, you know, beating their members in the case of the, the last fire in West Philadelphia in the eighties, it was, um, uh, uh, an armed, you know, mob of white police basically, uh, burning down, trapping people in the home, burning them inside, burning them alive inside the house, um, shooting those who attempted to flee, shooting at those who attempted to flee. And, and then ultimately the state imprisoned, uh, many of those of those who survived. So, so it's like today, in addition to having this mob come to the Capitol on January 6th, we've experienced in the black community and black communities across the country, the white mob uh, coming in the form of the police. Nicole, I want to, I want, I know we're, we're almost out of time. Let's play this audio clip. It's from Donald Trump. After the racist white supremacist, fascist led mob attack Congress, disperse Congress, and, uh, you know, a, at least one Capitol Police officer was killed there. Another one committed suicide. Usually that would be like, you know, for the right wing, like if a police officer dies, like, wow. But, you know, after all of that, just minutes after all of that happened and after Donald uh, Trump watched this violent assault on Congress, remember when when the when the insurrection or the uprising was kind of like sort of going off the off the, its wheels because Trump didn't show up at at uh, the Capitol building as he had told his minions that he would. Then, you know, he, he spoke on TV. He said, you know, it's time to go home. But listen to how he actually talks to them. They're escorted out of the place by the Capitol Police after having, you know, you know not all the Capitol Police, but some of them were taking selfies with these guys. Uh, and then listen, just listen to Donald Trump as we close out. I want to play it and just have a, a final word if we could. We love you. You're very special. You've seen what happens. You see the way others are treated that are so bad and so evil. 
I know how you feel. Uh, he's talking about, I know how you feel about others, that they were treated, but you were treated worse. He's actually, Nicole, talking about what happened to the Black Lives Matter movement and the protests during the summer, as if these uh, this racist mob was treated so badly, so badly compared to the way black people were treated, when the fact of the matter is there are 300 federal uh, conspiracy uh, cases now open and pending from the arrest, the mass arrests of people during the nationwide uprising against racism, 300 of them. And thousands of people were directly attacked by police. The police used pepper spray and tear gas and uh, uh, stinger grenades and rubber bullets in more than 110 cities. Uh, Again, but that's Donald Trump after the violent attack on Congress. He's at Mar-a-Lago. The Republicans are making their way to him. He's got lots of money. The, The Democrats in Congress are not calling for his arrest for seditious conspiracy. All they're doing, or his conspirators, co-conspirators at the top, all they're doing right now is pursuing impeachment, a crime which has no actual penalty for Trump because he would have already left office. Again, uh, let's not think that January 6th was the end. Uh, And I don't think we know yet what was really involved in January 6th. I think a lot more will come out over the months and years. But this struggle against racism and white supremacy and fascism is the dominant or a dominant story right now. Obviously, the Democrats are not going to really effectively fight against fascism. They're not going to effectively take care of the needs of the working class and the poor and those parts of the middle class that have been devastated by the depression caused by the government's failures on COVID. Uh, The Democrats are not going to be the solution But, uh, Nicole, we'll give you the final word. Uh, This is, in fact, the big struggle coming up in the country. It absolutely is. And I cannot underscore your point enough about how much terror the peaceful protesters all summer went through with sound cannons going off, with uh, horses um, brought out to trample peaceful protesters, with you know, the screams of protesters and media are continue to echo in my ears. And I know that of many other protesters around the country um, with what, as you're, you very well pointed out, more than 110 cities used tear gas on peaceful protesters in their cities. Yeah, this, this is the, you know, this is the problem. This is the, this is exactly what America is. And watching the Capitol Police just let people walk out, that this is America. Yeah, Donald Trump is sitting pretty at Mar-a-Lago playing golf. Uh, PSL members uh, in Denver uh, are facing 48 years in prison uh, because they led peaceful protests over the summer demanding justice for Elijah McClain, who was killed by the police. And they're not alone. There are people all over the United States, progressive and left people who are facing decades in prison right now. Uh, And meanwhile, uh, Donald Trump and the inciters of this violent attack on Congress, this murderous attack on Congress, sitting pretty, it says so much. Uh, Obviously, we have our work cut out for us. We're not just a radio show. We're activists. We're organizers. We're movement builders. And the most important thing right now is to build a mass movement demanding justice, economic and social justice, and demanding that the racist uh, and the fascist elements who are obviously involved in a criminal conspiracy and criminal conduct, a crime that January 6th was a crime scene, 
that they too be held account. Uh, overall, this is a big project. We have to fight and fight and fight. And in fact, that's just what we're going to do. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.